Dr. Amy Klinger, and we are with the Educators School Safety Network. We are a national nonprofit organization, and we provide school safety resources and training and technical assistance to schools throughout the United States and Canada. And uh, we are typically pretty serious, and we're typically pretty academic. And on this school safety free period, we're typically a little bit more informal. Um, but today, I think we're, we'll probably uh, be just the facts, ma'am. Obviously, um, those of you who are joining us live know that we here in the U.S. are in the middle of a pretty serious uh, coronavirus crisis happening. Not in the U.S., US but yeah. Well, but we, we only really can speak to the United States. Um, and actually, specifically here in Ohio, which is where Dr. Klinger and I both are, um, our governor just announced that um, all of the K-12 schools will be in a three-week hiatus. So today, I think we wanted to take the opportunity to starting talk on Monday. So starting on Monday. So I think we wanted to take the opportunity today to talk a little bit about what's happening and what does that mean for schools in the near term. And then I think kind of importantly, we want to t kind of transition to what does this mean for school safety more broadly in the future? Because I think um, there are a lot of lessons that we can learn uh, from this event moving forward for other types of hazards and incidents. So. Do you want to get started? Yeah, well, and, and I think, uh, you know, you said in the beginning, just facts. I'm not sure that we can always do the facts because there is so much uncertainty and so much that isn't necessarily known. Um, a study that by the time many of you listen to this podcast a few days from now, um, the situation may be very, very different. Yeah. It is a rapidly um, evolving situation. Uh, and, and so I think... Um, we need to sort of look at, or I think for the purposes of this podcast, we can kind of look at some of the dilemmas inherent in the school safety decisions that parents, educators, administrators have to make in the middle of a rapidly evolving situation, and frankly, um, a situation that's being impacted by the unprecedented nature of it to a certain extent, but also by the, the coverage, the media coverage, um, and the media finds themselves probably in the same sort of dilemma that, that we're discussing of how much is too much information, what do we get out there, what don't we, and then there's, you know, factoring social media and lots of misinformation and people are feeling very uncertain about what is the best course of action and what do we need to be doing. So maybe we can talk a little bit about those things that are sort of uh, foundational or keystone that you can't go wrong uh, doing these things. Yeah. And maybe we can kind of start from that. Yeah, I think, you know, a thing that we've talked about a lot that I think is a really important starting point, um, not just for this specific crisis that's happening, but in the future, other type of crisis events that your school might uh, might encounter is where does your experience as a professional educator end and where does the experience of other experts begin? And I think it's it's that finding that handoff point is really, really critical. So you, as a professional edu educator, are probably not an expert on infectious disease. So we have to defer to the judgment of health officials and the medical profession. 
but that doesn't mean that they're going to make every change in our school on every little minute detail. And that's the case here in this, but that might be the case if, for example, you uh, have a school that has a fire or a boiler explosion. You know, we talk in some of our courses about incident command, and the person who is the incident commander will change over the course of an event. So while the fire is raging, a fire official is the incident commander. And then once the fire has ended, the school person eventually will take over again and they will be the incident commander throughout recovery and through a, uh, you know continuing to normal operations and that's what's happening now and that's what happens in any type of a crisis event whether that happens whether that plays out over the course of 20 minutes or 20 days yeah, yeah and, and i think, I think it's, it's important, important to sort of examine a little bit that distinction between um, you know, I've had discussions with people of, you know, is this a school safety issue or is this a public health issue? Well, clearly it's a public public health issue, but you don't have to look too far beyond the parameters of a public health issue to see where the safety concerns begin to come into play. Not only in terms of exposure and contamination and those health concerns and the medical side of it, but also in terms of where are kids going to be if they aren't in school? And are we able to provide adequate supervision in school if we have a significant number of people who aren't there? And you know, a, a whole bunch of other things that come into play that are not directly with a straight line from coronavirus to them, but really live around the edges of this public health concern that's kind of the centerpiece of our attention right now. And I think, you know, it, obviously what's happening now, as you sort of indicated, is hap is changing very rapidly. And there are a lot of decision points that will be out of the hands of professional educators just due to the nature of, of being a global pandemic. And so I think yeah. all of these discussions that we're, we have, we're always sort of looking towards an, an eye to the future because maybe you don't have a continuity of operations plan in your school already closed. That well, ship I didn't want to talk about that. that. But that ship has sailed. And so then the question is, so what do we do for the future? What do we do to learn the lessons for the next thing that's maybe not as serious, maybe not as far-reaching, but is still a lower-level crisis event that impacts the school? So, yeah, I think it maybe it would be helpful for you to talk about what is a continuity of operations plan yeah. and how does that fit into emergency operations planning more broadly? And I, th I think that's a really relevant discussion right now. Every EOP emergency operation plan should have a component that speaks to continuity of operations of what do we do to continue in the face of a crisis event? And typically it's in the face of a crisis event that makes us unable to conduct normal operational procedures. So the building is damaged in a fire, to use your analogy earlier, or in a tornado, or the, so the physical building is not available to us. Or, in the case of what we're talking about today, we are not able to bring people into the facility or to congregate with that size of a population in the facility. And so I think that we, we a lot of emergency operation plans don't speak to that. And I think it's really critical that it's not just about, you know, and, and there's a piece that we have on our website that we encourage everyone to go to that kind of highlights um, seven different components of a, of a continuity of operation plan. You know, and one of them that I think is really foundational is the idea of identifying what are the essential functions of the organization. So despite everyone's current feeling, basketball is not an essential function of the school. Sorry, 
um, but perhaps educating students is or providing students with emotional support. And, and, it, and, and I can't speak to everyone as to exactly what that is, but identifying these are essential functions that to some degree we need to maintain and that these are non-essential functions and services that we're going to have to discontinue in the face of this particular event. Then you go into, okay, so who's making decisions about those essential functions? And how can we, what sort of locations and resources do we have to deliver those essential functions if we can't congregate in the physical facility? Do we have alternate locations? Do we have technology locations? Do we, you know, and that's what schools are really struggling with right now is what does that look like? Does that look like we're not going to, and I think some of the debate that I've heard is, is about the essential functions. Do we provide instruction during this time, yes or no? Do we provide meals to students during this time, yes or no? Do we provide um, additional special education, supportive intervention services, all that kind of thing? And I can't answer that for anyone, but we can't just ignore those and go, well, we're closed, what can we do? I don't know. We have to make um, strategic decisions about what those essential functions are. Yeah, and I think it's probably important. You kind of, uh, I think, in in your uh, enthusiasm, kind of glossed over this. When we talk about emergency operations plans, we're not talking about the flip chart that you might have hanging in a classroom that says, "Here's the procedure uh, if there's a fire." We're talking about the larger plan. Um, typically, it's done at a school district level, um, with specific, you know, specific information for each school. But it's done at a district level. Um, typically, these are required by state law. Um, and so the the thing the, the, the troubling thing is, on paper, in theory, your school and your school district probably has an emergency operations plan that probably includes a discussion of continuity of operations. The pr question is, how good how good is it? Was it copied from a template? Is it a boilerplate? continuity of operations. I'm a little skeptical on that one. And so the, the question is, is there a discrepancy between what we think we have, what we have on paper, what we're required to have by law, and what we actually, what tools in a continuity of operations plan we actually have at our disposal? And so, you know, we're dealing with some schools that are already closed and are already kind of past this, but there are still a lot of schools in this country that are still open um, that have not made announcements about um, moving you know, moving to online or, or moving to, you know, uh, virtual instruction. And so then the question is, does your school have time to do a little bit of a work on a continuity of operations plan if we don't have one or if we have one that really doesn't meet our needs because we never thought we were going to be able to use it? And then my other question to you is to talk a little bit about when we, when we typically talk about the use of a continuity of operations plan, um, you kind of gave some examples, like if the building was damaged in a fire. Um, we see folks that are using it because there's damage to the physical facility, um, when there has been violent, larger scale violent events in the past, um, and we have to transition uh, to a different thing. And sometimes the continuity of operations is we're doing construction on this facility, 
and we're not going to have school in this high school next year. We're going to have school elsewhere while the while the building's being renovated, and then we move back. Um, those type of logistical questions happen whether it's for a crisis or whether it's for some other sort of interruption in the services that we're providing. Well, the, the, the unfortunate part, part though, is we see a lot of schools that that, that is the only time, time they're addressing continuity of operations is when they see the future and say a plan and go, well, you know, yeah, we're going to be moving, we're going to be remodeling. And then they develop a continuity of operations plan, which is why a lot of places are really sort of scrambling. And and we know that a school, if, if a school is going to be closed, as it is in Ohio, it's going to be closed, whether you have a continuity of operations plan or not. But the question is going to be, can we do a better job of carrying out the essential functions? Can we do a better job of ensuring the safety of kids? Can we do a better job of supporting um, the needs of families during this time, if we have planned ahead with the continuity of operations plan, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you're going to have schools that are going to, we're going to do this whether we were planning for it or yeah. not. But I do think that it certainly is an opportunity for us to look at, and I guess maybe that's the big takeaway, is, is to look at what are we doing in schools that is much more focused on all hazards as opposed to, you know, I was looking at some information that came out of Pennsylvania today that they, they're estimating that schools in Pennsylvania have spent an average of $125,000 on active shooter response training. Mm -hmm. Okay, and that's and, and whether that's a, a good investment or not, it's not, not up for debate right now, but at what expense, at what cost to everything else? Right. So what else? So if we are finding ourselves unprepared for this particular event, understandably so, this sort of black swan event, if you will, we should also be asking the question, between the continuum of other things, what else are we not prepared for because we have been spending so much time and energy on this very on this somewhat statistically rare event? Now you can say, well, this is a statistically rare event too. So it does really speak to the need for an all-hazards, more comprehensive approach. So I think there certainly is a conversation to be had about emergency planning. Yeah. But I want to pivot just for well, a minute. Well, well, before you move on to that, so we have resources about continuity of operations oh, okay. plan. Right. We have resources about emergency operations planning. We have those on our website, uh, www.eschoolsafety.org. If you head there, you can find those. Um, we'll try to make sure that we put some links here in the description of this video for those of you who are joining us live on YouTube. Um, but we do have resources specifically about that. Um, to kind of help if you do have a little bit of time um, to try to get some of those plans in order um, before things head your way. Well, and it is, a, a, you raise a really valid point. Um, there is so much information that's disseminated that is health-oriented in terms of here's what the symptoms are and here's this and this and this. But there's not a lot of information being, giving to being given to educators in terms of planning and preparation for the ramifications of what would happen if we were unable to perform the essential function of education within the facility. But there are a lot of resources, and so we'll make sure that we have, have links to those so that you're able to access. Because that guidance is always kind of out there. It's just not really top of mind like it is at the moment. Yeah. So then I want to pivot to some of the other things that I think are critical for schools to consider, regardless of whether they find themselves doing uh, school in a different way or in a traditional setting. 
I think there are certainly social and emotional issues and needs that are happening that we need to be really cognizant of in terms of kids' fears, anxiety, um, the way that people are, you know, uh, I was in a store this morning and literally we did three things and went, I'm not buying enough apparently. So, I mean, I understand, we understand that human desire to stockpile and to prepare, which clearly we're advocates for, but that takes a toll on our kids of what's happening, where are we going, what's going to happen to me, what if I get this, but you know, and all of those things that are going to certainly be impacting kids, as well as the potential for significant disruptions in their routines. And we know that that clearly is an issue for, for many, many kids to, you know, who are in a routine and, and have relationships established with caregivers and teachers and school staff and those relationships are potentially being disrupted. So I think we need to, in the hysteria, not forget that we've got little guys and big guys out there who need some reassurance and need to have, um, to be able to put the, the threat and the issues in, a, in the proper context. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, obviously in any of these discussions, whether it's about uh, coronavirus or whether it's about the preparations that we're doing in our school for uh, severe weather or uh, violence at school, that, you know, ma make sure that we're having those discussions in a way that's developmentally appropriate. But that I think, you know, you always, you know, think back to that sort of very famous Mr. Rogers quote of like, look to the helpers, that that's such, that that can be such a comfort to people. And so not just to look to the helpers, but to look at the things that we're doing proactively. And, you know, that obviously, you know, stockpiling can be taken to an, you know, you know uh, irrational extreme, but that we're doing preparations and that we're being proactive. So whether that's planning for coronavirus or whether that's planning for inclement weather, we go and we look at where do we stand if there, if the, if there was dangerous because of wind here? Where would we go? How, what would that look like? And, and, you know, we feel very strongly that there's absolutely ways to do that in a way that is empowering, not just to adults, but empowering to kids. Um, that it, that, you know, that, you know, I've, and this is not something that unfortunately is I've ever come across a ton of studies about, but acting like this could never happen. And we're going to imagine that violence never happens at school. And we're going to imagine that bad things never happen because that might be scary to kids. It's a futile exercise. I mean, kids know, kids are aware. Kids and the denial creates anxiety as well. And the denial creates anxiety. And so we're really strong advocates for developmentally appropriate conversations with these are the things that we're doing to mitigate risk. And these are the things that we're doing to plan and to practice. And it, it, probably nothing bad is going to happen, but these are the things that we're doing to be responsible. And I think especially with the way that this virus is sort of shaking out with the actual risk to children versus the risk to older populations, I think it's a good time to teach a lesson about being a good citizen. That, you know, kids aren't really at risk for um, other other than with you know underlying health conditions, but most kids aren't really at risk for a lot of danger from coronavirus. But that still means we wash our hands because we might have friends who their health conditions mean that they are more at risk. And so I think it's a really good way to teach lessons about empathy that we're always talking about with kids and about being a good citizen. And what are the things that we all do to try to help each other and to try to take care of each other? And I think that's a good way to frame it that again t makes it less scary that this is this is something that we all are doing together well so i think we should wrap up with just a few random thoughts that are not particularly helpful or nurturing but are just things that we have to acknowledge well before you get to that were you going to talk about communication or is that one of them 
Oh, no, that's not one of them. So, yeah, okay. I was going to go off into left field of just like a few random thoughts that I've had that as educators, we can all um, maybe think about. Yeah, before, back up to, yeah, before you go professional for another couple minutes. Yeah, before you go on a rant. Um, another big consideration. So we talked about continuity of operations. We talked about discussions with kids. I think communications from schools with parents is really important. And I, obviously, you might be under a lot of pressure at the moment to be communicating a lot with parents. Are we closing? Are we doing virtual instruction? What does that look like? And that feeling of that urgency or of people demanding information um, is happening now, but that happens in all types of school safety or crisis events. And so we're really big advocates for having established channels of communications with parents and that we have those open and that people understand when things are serious, this is how we will communicate with you. And you know, we see a lot of schools that have a lot of communication templates prepared ahead of time. And so that they don't have to, in a panic, write a five paragraph email, but they have some stock language about here's what we're doing, here's how we will continue to communicate with you, here's how we will update with you as the situation progresses. And those are really helpful to be able to lean on some of that verbiage so that you don't have to be starting from scratch, which can feel really intimidating. And then I think the other big thing, and I think you talked about this in, uh, I believe, some resources you did for ASCD, was that we are telling people facts and we are telling people what we know as opposed to conjecture or like conjecturing about what might be the case. Um, well, and to not sugarcoat. Make them feel good, but right, not and to not helpful. Right. And, and, you know, we see this when we talk about crisis communication of uh, we're sure that all the kids are safe, you know, if their boiler exploded. And if you don't know for sure that all the kids are safe and accounted for, you better not say all the kids are safe and accounted for. And so just making sure that we are we are keeping people updated and we're being proactive with the communication. And again, just as the same way that we can't pretend, uh, you know, for the sake of children that bad things don't happen, the kids will find out. Same thing with the adults. We can't act like everything is fine, the parents will find out. The parents will either get the communications that you give to them or they will make up their own answers. And so being proactive and being upfront um, really is the only way to handle communications with parents. Do you want to say anything else about that or you want to go on a rant? No, I Go on a rant. Perfect sense. It's not a rant. You did say, you said I wanted to go on a rant. No, I didn't. I, I, you said rant. I said I was going to veer off into just some random thought. Ah, okay. Okay. But I do think, you know, again, the, the as an administrator, school administrator is trained to imagine what are all the things that could go wrong here? What are all the potential things that I need to consider in this pep rally or this parent-teacher conference, whatever it is. So I guess that training has been kicking in lately because I'm having a lot of random thoughts. And one of them is, I, I, I think it's, we need to uh, be self-aware of, you know, we talk a lot about security theater where you're creating the illusion of stuff because it feels good, not because it's helpful. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if we're veering into, or we're wandering in some places into coronavirus theater where we're like, I'm wearing, uh, you know, the, the person looking at my receipt today at the store is wearing gloves. For what purpose? Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's, you know, some of those things that... Well, and, and, and about and the gloves... Could, could find themselves in that problem as well. And since you touched on it, you know, about gloves and masks, the CDC did give specific guidance about the use of, of masks. Healthy people shouldn't be wearing masks. Um, people who are directly in contact with an infected person should be wearing masks. Healthcare workers following their protocols should be wearing masks, but that it is not advisable or necessary for you just to be 
wearing a mask and gloves because it doesn't make a difference and it perpetuates um, some of that fear and panic and hysteria. And this idea that, you know, if uh, a tablespoon of hand sanitizer is good, a cup of hand sanitizer is better. And I just have this image, having spent a lot of time with elementary school kids, of kids just pumping that hand sanitizer and just dispensing it, you know, like sanitizing everything. So I think we, you know, some of that coronavirus theater stuff, I think we need to be sensitive to. I also had a lot of conjecture or thinking about the, the whole idea of online instruction and transitioning to home instruction, what that looks like. And, you know, I felt like maybe I could hear the copy machines running all over the United States in schools, just churning out hundreds of pounds of worksheets that we're stuffing into blizzard bags and we're, and the kids are gonna go home, you know, weighted down with like a ream of paper and, you know, that kind of stuff. So I think we need to, you know, be a little savvy instructionally in terms of, you know, if one worksheet is good, 30 worksheets, I'm not sure that that's better. So I was kind of thinking of that. I also was having some thoughts about Karen's, about, as we repatriate and we get back to normal, which will happen, it's a question of how long it's going to take, um, will we have a more nuanced understanding from parents of what exactly it takes to uh, teach a first grader how to go through their reading ring or what it means to teach cursive writing to a fourth grader or how it is to uh, apply the periodic table to a freshman if we have parents who are finding them, themselves unwittingly immersed in that world. So I, I do wonder uh, if we will have a lot of, you know, cabin fever sort of situations where you're like, we need to reopen the school because I can't take this kid anymore. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of, as much as I'm saying that to be funny, I think we have to acknowledge that that's going to be an issue for some folks, that we're going to have, you know, people are going to have to take care of themselves a little bit in terms of, you know, their perspective with uh, having a lot of people in close proximity being asked to do things that you don't normally do. Uh, so I was thinking about that one. I also was thinking about the congregating of people. You know, so are we gonna have all the kids, you know, everyone's hanging out at the, you know, at the mall or everyone's, you know, so we're shifting the crowd from one place to another. I mean, those are clearly all gonna be issues that we're, that we're going to, uh, we're going to be talking about and also the idea of when you're you find yourself shifting to home instruction you know i think schools are going to have to be strategic and i had this conversation with an administrator yesterday about the potential of giving kids like checklists because we send everyone home and then oh my graphing calculator is in my locker oh my good basketball shoes are in you know because kids don't typically have to plan in that way so i think we need to think about some developmentally appropriate strategies for helping people to prepare and to, to get organized for a for the potential of instruction in a really non-traditional environment. I mean, I can see people scouring the neighborhood trying to find a graphing calculator or something. It'll be, it'll be interesting, that's for sure. I think, you know, the, the underlying current to all of your uh, little tangents, which were not rants, so I, I take back my earlier uh, current concern, is that just as in everything, and we talk about this all the time, that we're being strategic and intentional, and that the choices that we make of 
okay, so this is the risk. These are the things we're doing to mitigate the risk, but this is the core function that I'm still trying to accomplish, that we're just being strategic and intentional in the way that we go about those. And I realize that, you know, some folks uh, are in schools that have already ceased instruction or already have been tra transitioned to home instruction, and you maybe don't have the luxury of as much time to be strategic and intentional. But I, I think, you know, really saying, you know, and that's part of that communication with parents, we will have communication for you very soon. We are formulating a plan. We are trying to do this in a way that's going to be best for kids and best for safety and best for health. And, you know, you've talked about this before of administrators of, of being able to say, even to a student where we're talking about discipline, I'm going to get back to you really soon about this because we want to make a decision that is a good decision. And if that means we need to take another five minutes or another day, whatever the case may be, that we're doing things that are really strategic and intentional as opposed to just, oh my gosh, we have to make a decision. Any decision is better than no decision. Yeah. That might not always be the case. So, so well, I'd, I'd like, like to, to close with taking off my safety hat and saying like the most old teacherish thing. And I understand <laughs> as I'm saying it, I understand how antiquated and dated that I sat. I'm looking but forward to this. I, I want to close by saying, if we find ourselves in situations, regardless of what the school does, where we are self-quarantined or at home or much more isolated than we typically, we're not having our normal day-to-day -day lives, I would encourage folks to also let's look at it as an opportunity, perhaps as a reset, to slow down a little bit, to reestablish connections and relationships with our kids and our families. and you know, regardless of the nature of the instruction that may come home from the school, as parents, the responsibility of parents is ultimately to their kids. Then it doesn't matter if it's a worksheet or not a worksheet that, come, that comes home. Turn off the TV, just read. If your kids spend three weeks at home reading, that would probably be better than anything that the school could send home as well. So. I just encourage people to take advantage of the opportunity to be empowered, to uh, take control over those relationships and what's happening with their kid. No kid needs to sit at home for three weeks on the couch watching Netflix. So let's impose some other structures. Maybe we're gonna do a little more reading. We're gonna do a little more physical activity. We're gonna do a little more conversation and relationships. We could come out of, these, um, of this time actually ahead academically as well as socially and emotionally if we take charge of what's happening to us. So that's my little bit of an inspirational but old-fashioned sounding speech. Yeah. Well, and so we wish everyone um, luck and we wish everyone the best and we wish everyone the uh, fortitude to make good decisions and to be strategic and intentional in those. Um, as always, we you know encourage folks, you can reach out. We do have a lot of resources on our website, um, www.eschoolsafety.org. Um, obviously, we don't have, we are not public health officials, and so we don't have a ton of specific guidance about that, but we do have guidance, again, on where does public health expertise end and where does yours as an educational leader begin and of helping you navigate um, the side of the coin that is your responsibility. And um, if you have any questions, you can always reach out to us on social media or um, via email, info at eschoolsafety.org. And uh, we like to wave to the folks who've joined us 
you never wave when I when we wave. I, we like to <laughs> wave to the folks who are joining us live on YouTube, um, and then we say hello to people who are joining us on the podcast. If you have a colleague who you think needs to hear this, you can always um, send them to the website. You can listen to this wherever you get your podcasts, or you can listen to it directly on your um, uh, directly on our website if you are. Uh, not a podcast type person. If you are quarantined at home and you want to use that time to do some professional development, um, we have a lot of free online professional development available on our website. Um, if you go and look through past episodes of this or our webinars that are a little bit more formal, we do have the opportunity to be able to provide folks um continuing education credit for those if you want to use that time to uh, get a little bit caught up on some of the school safety stuff that certainly is a good opportunity as well so uh thanks again and best of luck to everyone and uh until next time thanks <laughs>